I wouldn't be sat here now had they not come into power. Welcome to Surviving Society with Chantel and Tiso. This season's broad theme is reconfiguring whiteness. This is a bonus episode that I managed to record when I came up to do a PhD presentation at Durham University at the beginning of January. And I was so lucky to sit down and chat with Sol Gamzu. Hi Sol. Hi. We're going to talk a bit about class, labour, keeping radical ideas alive and where we go from here. And bit, bits about your research as well, your ongoing stuff, yeah. yeah. Can you just introduce the listeners to who you are, Sol, like what you do? Yeah, so uh, I'm Sol Gamzu. I'm a, a lecturer in sociology at Durham University in the Department of Sociology here. And my research really looks at the geography of the school system, inequalities between schools in different neighbourhoods, regions, elites, the education of elites, both in higher education and in the school system private schools and I was also involved with the Abolish Eaton, the Labour campaign against private schools, which we can perhaps talk about later. Uh, do you know what? I didn't actually know that you were part of the campaign because for eight, I don't know if you saw, but me and T were trying to get someone from Abolish Eaton to come on the podcast oh. for ages and now I've got you. Got like me. I've got you by yeah. accident. Like we kept adding the Twitter being like, can someone come on the podcast? Because we really wanted to talk about private schools and abol- obviously abolishing Eaton. Oh, it's a shame we didn't yeah. have done it earlier. But... Yeah, we can dip into it now, but maybe we'll do another one when Tiso's here as well and talk about yeah. it. Yeah. I also, last year with Professor Richard Hall, who works at Leicester de Montfort University, put together an anthology of sort of policy writing about alternative ideas for further and higher education with class, the Centre for Labour and Social Studies. Isa Shaheen did a, did a foreword and, and conclusion and, and edited some of the document. So I did that, which came out last May. It's called uh, A New Vision for Further and Higher Education. Yes. Essay collection. So this was a policy, a sort of set of different policy papers. So we've got stuff in there on cooperative edu- higher education, Uh, thinking about the post-neoliberal university, how ideas around university can be tied into ideas around municipal socialism and and kind of left local agenda, and that's David Ridley. So what is municipal socialism? So municipal socialism is the idea that, and and the history of having left-wing councils try and organise for socialism within their local areas. Examples for that are in a kind of contemporary sense, are what's going on in Preston, uh, mm-hmm. with the kind of oh, Preston-Cleveland yeah. model, yeah. where they've redone how they tender for services so that much more of it is going to local businesses, social enterprises, and co-ops. I feel like that is just like the dream. Yeah. It gives space to so much more personalised service. Well, I don't mean service, but like different things that affect different people in different ways in different areas. Like, we were talking earlier today about, like, the election stuff and why... Yeah. Like, if people with identical material conditions in the north to that in Lewisham, why don't they vote in the same way? Like, all those things can be sort of grappled with a little bit more on a local level. Yeah, and I think David Ridley, who wrote that chapter, was trying to really tie together what's been tried in the more adventurous and the more left-wing local councils, of which Preston is one, and one really of the only... Labour councils, which has done anything interesting in the last decade, that was really a, a failing, I think, of, mm. of the Corbyn project, mm. not to have held Labour councils to account for a lot of the crap that they were doing, 
both prior to Corbyn coming becoming leader mm-hmm. around PFI, quote unquote regeneration, i.e. gentrification. What's PFI? Sorry, sir. So PFI is the Private Finance Initiative, which was the privatisation of lots of public services, which has happened over the last three decades. Mm. A lot of Labour councils were really heavily involved in a neoliberal project, really, and still are. Mm. And one of the things that Corbyn didn't do was push against the right-wing councillors or encourage the new membership to push against the right-wing councillors, with the result that those councils went on and implemented five years of austerity, um, well, more than that, Mm. but have implemented austerity under his whilst he was leader. It's so depressing. It is depressing, but... But... So we wrote this report and we put together this report and there's other papers in there on FE by Vicky Duckworth and Rob Smith on adult education and universities for everyone, on disability and inclusion, decolonising the curriculum, gender-based violence in HE. We put together this document because we felt that higher education hadn't really been discussed and further education hadn't really had any policy development done by the Labour Party and we wanted this document really to provide the basis for debate around ideas that a future Labour government could do you know what? You're making me sad, Sol, because I remember you emailing me yeah, I, about yeah. yeah a year ago, maybe, about it, being like, we're going to do this. And I was like, oh, my God, sick. That's so good. Like, we might, in the next year, we might mm. even have a Corbyn government. And, like, how exciting that, mm. like, at the forefront of these possible debating points or ideas for future education, that it's, like, a group of people that are so, like, just on it and want things to change and want, like... A socialist environment and policies for um, the university and further education that they're putting this together mm. and that was a year ago now I know. and now looking at it like we were talking earlier like it's obviously it's, in, it's an incredible piece of literature but it's just so sad because we're further away from this now than we may when we were a year ago it is really sad and I think everyone's in a, a grieving process yes really at the moment I certainly am. I think it's an interesting point to talk about what is the role of of academics within and in relation to political movements. That's such a good question, Sol, because it's something that I grapple with so much. When I first started like entering quote unquote the academy, I was so angry at how much knowledge and information I wasn't getting outside of the academy and then how many just sort of like disasters that seem to be happening around us and I just felt like academia could be doing more but then like when I'm challenged on that it's sometimes really difficult to say what both physically materially intellectually academia can do I believe it can do more but like I think I almost have I get more annoyed at academia I don't know I feel like I hold it to a maybe an unfair position or I expect I expect maybe expect too much but I think you're right to be angry because I think there are too many academics who don't think of their work or of themselves as political actors yeah when every act yeah everything is political Political. yeah and particularly when you're in a position of having studied for Mm. 10 years basically Mm -hmm. or nearly 10 years Mm -hmm. in most of most of our cases like that means you have a wealth of knowledge Knowledge. and 
I don't think our role within political movements is to, to, to put ourselves on a pedestal. Okay. It's not, it's not, I, I don't think we should think of ourselves necessarily as people that should be leading or that we should be the people that decide on policy. No. I think it's important to have put ideas out there and put the debate out there, but the ideas are what matter, not the individuals involved. And our role as academics is should be as, as educators mm. and as people that try and develop and, and, and spread political consciousness mm. um, in whatever domain it is that we, that we specialise and look mm. at. It's so interesting you saying that because I'm just looking at your bookshelf and I've got Stuart Hall looking at me, selectors, political writings, and he obviously said, well, first mm. and foremost, I'm a teacher. Yeah. I guess maybe what you're saying is sometimes we, we don't extend that enough, maybe. We don't do enough to extend our teaching or push out what we've learned. It doesn't have to be in a way that positions us as the kings of knowledge or anything like that, no. but it's about injecting and trying, injecting bits of knowledge or injecting information that could possibly help and also receiving and opening the academy to yeah. knowledges. Like we're not the knowledge producers. Yeah. Like. It involves deconstructing a lot of what we're told about academia and what yeah. it should be and the kind of the, the discourse and the reality of neoliberal higher education because it, it means producing reports and obviously you have to prioritise if you want an academic career you mm -hmm. have to to get that job yes you have to prioritise journal articles and so on and so on um, but when you're in a position to be able to produce critical writing which is explicitly political in its intention mm -hmm. um, and, and bridges that divide but not just between policy which the ESRC uh, and the whole impact mm -hmm. agenda is designed to, allegedly designed to help you influence, mm -hmm. quote unquote. It's not about policy, it's about thinking about writing that is political, that spreads ideas, that allows people to think differently about something and being able to communicate that as well. And, and Les Back, I know you've had mm -hmm. on in the past, um, is, you know, has written about that, the kind of narrowness of the impact agenda, for example. And as sociologists, I think specifically, like we have to figure out what is our role in relation to the state. Yeah. Um, what is it? At the moment, I feel like an antagonizer. So there's a book called uh, In and Against the State, which was by a group of Marxists. It's actually available for free. That book is written in the late 70s, the early 80s, and it was written by people who were activists on the left in some form, social workers, community workers, uh, when they still existed, mm -hmm. teachers, uh, people working in the health service. Uh, and they were trying to theorise and understand their position because they felt like in the evening they went out and did some form of socialist activism or some form of mm -hmm. activism. Mm -hmm. And then during the day they went and did the state's work. And so they were basically, it was the work of Sisyphus, that, work, that mm -hmm. Greek myth, which is like you're, you're endlessly repeating what you're doing and in fact in the evening you're trying they were trying to unpick the work that they'd done during the day in working for a national health service that was racist mm. that didn't treat neurodiverse mm. uh, patients properly and their kind of work tried to say well our position as people who are in the state and i think as academics we should think of ourselves in this way as well 
is to try and subvert our everyday practice mm. insofar as we can. And there is not, isn't always much leeway to do that. But our work is always to try and undo the institutions that we're in rather than going on as if we can just do a, a, a little bit extra at the end of the day. If we take that approach, then we'll never change uh, the core of what we do that's really good so in the day you're doing the state's work in the evening you're unpicking it that is that is academia isn't it that rings true to me and that also reminds me a little bit about Hyundai Andrews when he talks about the university as a slave plantation but what we have to do is find ways to extract the resources and the capitals in yeah. order to make things better for everyone outside of that yeah yeah that makes sense and that makes it a lot because you do like you um and are like am i doing the right thing being here like am i um conditioning the status quo being here like what am i what is my role but you're right like it can't be just those little bits at the end of the day it's got to be throughout hasn't it it's got to be embedded within our practice but that is fucking difficult as much as we can as much as we can yeah people have to be in relation to where they are in their careers and where they are the institutions that they're in family family and yeah. recognize that there's lots of privilege yes involved with that yeah and as a white middle-class man obviously like i'm in a position where a lot of the barriers that mm-hmm. don't exist for doing political act- activism mm. that don't exist for me exist for others mm. Mm. but nonetheless i think that is our in relation to the state that's part of our role I personally, I don't trust the state. I do think that one of the more exciting things that's happened since the election defeat has been the, there's a a group called the the Black Rose Caucus, which is a kind of libertarian socialist grouping, which has just appeared. Some, Some undergraduate students, I think, that are pushing it. And their analysis of the state is that the state is a problem. And very often within the Labour Party, the state is seen as something that you can take over make the state some kind of benign force. Whereas actually, yes, there are things we can win by mm. having control of the state, over mm. the state, but is it something, in so many occasions, it distorts what we're actually trying to do in the first place. And that, you know, it means that we have to have very critical understanding of the state, I think. It's like even when state policies might help some people, like, it's never going to be straightforward it's never going to be perfect because the state is the state and it's not going to change yeah i mean the sense that does it empower people yeah you no, know we, we can have and and it's like what we were we mm. were talking about this on on twitter are are people empowered by having a labor council well no no that's really interesting that's really interesting and you know are people empowered by social housing well not mm. if it's shit no and not if the whole way of accessing it and living it is punitive. And thinking about the state critically, and it's a minefield, right? Because yeah. where do you put your energy? And especially that's now... That's what I feel, yeah. That's what I feel like. Oh my God, what now? And I think that there are no simple answers to, to, the, to, to that question of what should we do now? Because yes... Uh, in some cases, there are still things that we can fight for within the Labour Party. I want there to be a, an, another left-wing leader. But a lot of the things that are, we're going to have to fight in the next five years are going to be defensive. You know, it's going to so be true. about building solidarity to support people who are going to come under attack. Yeah. That will be what we end up doing. But 
having in the back of our mind and, and keeping the discussions going we have started in the last five years and before that about the new ideas we want and that we need to build a new society and, and let, let's face it like some of the silver linings or to be cliched are about young people and they're about young people like seeing that the only real future is through some massive move to the left of mm. where things are mm. right mm. now mm. and it's our responsibility as educators, as academics, in positions of cultural and to some extent when, when you're in a permanent position of economic power, it's our responsibility to be keeping these ideas alive, to be developing them, to be teaching not only our undergraduate students but thinking about how we push out beyond the confines of, of academia. Because if we're not here to do that, then what's the point? I don't care about writing a policy report for the REF impact statement. Like, I couldn't give a shit about that. Yes, all right, everyone has to have their careers, blah, blah, blah. But, but that's not the reason that we do things. And if it is, then quite frankly, you need to question what your agenda is because literally, like, the, wol the wolves are at our door. In fact, they've already, they've already smashed in. down they're the door. They're in the door, yeah, yeah. They're, 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 they're inside the house. And, yeah. and this, is about the f this is not just about the present, this is about the future for everyone that's coming after us. Yeah. And it's always been about that. I think there's an acuteness to how it feels right now because of climate change. Yeah. Because of the kind of racist nationalism and authoritarianism that we're, that we're seeing pop up everywhere. Thinking about how I felt on that morning after the election, and you sort of saying that it sounds cliche about young people, like, I don't think it sounds cliche. Like, whenever people ask me who inspires me right now, it's fucking young people. Mm. Like, and I'm relatively young still. Yeah, like, yeah. it's the people younger than me that yeah. are like literally keeping that little fire burning in my head right now. Like, they're so, they know their shit, they're organizing, and they're pissed off. And as you say, like, they're talking about the only way to combat what we're up against, whether it's climate change, state violence, the far right, is through a big move to the left. And that is, yeah. that's good. I guess the other thing that I'm thinking about is obviously being inspired by them. But equally, like, waking up on that morning after the election, I felt so guilty that this happened. Mm. Like, obviously, in my own, like, personal life as an individual, like, I did what I can in the time that I had with the resources that I had. Yeah. And I know lots of people did that as well, but it was too late. And I think for a lot of us, even though so many of us on the left were like trying to organize, have discussions and push back against what eventually won this last election, I feel like we dropped the ball. I feel like we could have been there in there much earlier. I feel like we underestimated what we were up against. Even saying that, I think we knew we were up against something very difficult, like a nasty concoction of racism, nationalism, authoritarianism. That's always going to be like, seem like a mountain to climb, to challenge that. But I think it was even worse than that. It's like that on mm. steroids. And I just feel like the energy that we had for let's just say the last quarter of 2019 if we'd had that from our 2016 i think we'd be in a very i'm not saying we would have won but i think we'd be in a very different situation from what we're in now i think we got complacent i've been grieving obviously but i felt just a sense of guilt really more could have been done i think i think i was talking to a, a an anarchist friend of mine who said you know they fucked up like if you're a social democrat and the point is to win state power and they, mm. they totally failed mm. 
And, and I think we need a clinical analysis of what happened in the Labour Party in the run-up, not, not just in the run-up to this election, but actually since Corbyn came to power. Mm. Things like, you know, we weren't having those conversations immediately after the Brexit referendum, for example. We weren't doing that. And, and, and some of the reasons that we failed um, and those reasons that we were defeated, and there's also reasons that they won. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, this is people's everyday lived experiences of being crushed by the state in the media. Mm -hmm. And we can do, and we did, like you said. And I don't think we should feel... I don't think guilt, guilt's never a useful emotion. No, of course, yeah. But we did everything we could uh, on an individual level, but this is about how we learn from a defeat and come back and win next time. And that might not be in winning in five years, but it sure is down, you know, it has to mean that we win eventually. Mm. And, you know, why did we fail? Well, Momentum, um, which is the, the organisation that was set up to sort of try and organise and in some ways represent the, the membership that came into the Labour Party when Corbyn was elected, was never organised on a democratic basis. It was very quickly became co-opted as a, as a means to organise people within party structures, getting people to take over their local party branches. This is just like, um, honestly, when people, when people break this stuff down to me, like yeah. about momentum, it's a bit crazy. It is crazy. But... Like, but I almost, when people tell me about it, when other people told me this, I'm like, nah, surely not. Surely that's not what went down. No, I but mean... it's just, it just seems so crazy. It's, it's not that, so, so Momentum pushed people to, into taking over their local parties and into electoralism and into sort of fighting for the election in 2017 and then again in 2019. And it's not that those things weren't necessary if you want to democratise the party but to the, an extent or democratise it to an extent to an extent but also sap people's energy and push it into a very rigid and normative way of doing politics which is about going on people's doorsteps and going on the doorstep is great mm. but is it that's not the same as movement building at, or at least it's not if the only question you're asking is are you going to vote Labour we both did canvassing. I must say, I think even that right, even though we had loads of people out, it was amazing seeing how many people were out, like more than ever, like it was brilliant. The actual systems in terms of how we did it, how, what we asked people, what the strategies were, I thought were really backwards, like in some instances, like we were told that in training, for example, don't go, only go to people that have voted for Labour because it's about getting the Labour vote out. And obviously, like, thinking numbers-wise and the time we had, that makes sense because you need to get as many people out that you know that are going to vote for Labour. But it almost feels like we should have, the canvassing and mobilising us, like, through hope and politics and whatever should have started earlier. And then we could have got those people, they were saying to me, there's no point talking to that person. Because those people that we weren't able to convince or didn't go out to vote meant that we lost seats and we didn't win seats as well like do you know do you, do you see what i mean and like i don't know it just felt quite dated it is dated i mean yeah. the mechanics of it and i'm not an expert on on the mechanics of, no <laughs> i'm not a uh, political sociologist or, or or someone that is a electoral strategist or anything like that but but i think it i think you're right in it the fact that it's dated and i 
I think it also. I think it, I think what we also un- underestimated, um, and again, it's easy to say this, but it's true, is that we weren't just fighting against Trump and the the kind of forces of Brexit. That mm. we weren't just fighting against that. Mm. We were fighting against three or four decades of both neoliberal economics, which has destroyed uh, the old organisational forms of left solidarity, Mm. inadequate as those things were, those organisations were in various ways. Mm. Um, You know, unions weren't necessarily democratic, Mm. they weren't necessarily always anti-racist, but those things have have gone, uh, particularly uh, around here in the North East, uh, but the same goes for for lots of the places across the country. That's gone, and you know the, the 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 racist nationalism that has been whipped up over decades. It it feel in a way it's like well you know this is what we study right neoliberalism mm. and and this is what we're constantly talking about with undergraduates is uh, on social policy courses is you know this is what they did mm. and this is what happens right. This is the outcome. This is what happens. This is what happens. We spoke about this um, on the podcast um, before Christmas on the T's and C's with Dan Rennick. It's got to the point now. The power of neoliberalism and all these years of yeah, just destroying the state and ramping up racism, nationalism has meant that people would prefer to not have an NHS than to share it with someone that doesn't speak the same language as them, for example. And that that for me was one of the most frightening things about this general election because it was a hot topic on the doorstep, the NHS. It really was. But it wasn't enough. Mm. It wasn't enough. And I thought that that was something that was so embedded in the the national identity of this country Mm. that that would help maybe at least get a hung parliament. Yeah. But, like... Corbyn, like, he gave, he gave you the receipts. He showed you they're going to privatise it. Like, if you have anyone close to you that's had any sort of serious healthcare issues over the past few years, I'm included in these people, then I can tell you that it's, it's going. It's yeah. going. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and to me, that was one of the scariest things. And as you say, you teach students that teach students about this. That's what. That's the end. The outcome. The yeah. outcome is that people would rather. Yeah. And I think it's, it's the historical outcome of what we've lived, what we've lived to, or really were born into. Mm. But it, it, like the the link between nationalism and also like racism mm. and public services is also something we shouldn't underestimate. Right? I know, and I did like that, and that's what so just so fascinates me. Obviously, makes me really sad, but fascinates me because I feel like I'm quite cynical in terms of how racist the country is and how much racism operates within structure and interpersonally. Even myself underestimate the, the link to racism and services and the state and yeah, the public sector and how what the ten, the tensions there. And I feel like that's what we saw come really come out this general election. Yeah, I mean, I think that. The clues in the name like National Health Service mm. and, and and thinking about how there there's a paper by I think Bennett, Alistair Bennett or Bonnet, who wrote this paper, when did the English working class become white or when mm-hmm. and, and within that there's he he kind of 
discusses in an interesting way, and I think Satnam Verdi slightly disagrees with them on the timings of, of this process. But in relation to the National Health Service how, or, or housing, for example, how arguments about who's this being ours and who that us is. Who ours is, yeah. Um, I mean, it's like within mm. your own research, there are these histories mm. of white nationalism mm. among sections of the working class and racism. And that, yeah, I was talking to a friend over New Year's who was talking about anti-Semitic riot, a couple of villages in, in the Welsh Valleys in 1910, 1911, around about then. Oh, my God. And, you know, there are hardly any, any Jews in in the valleys at that time. So I can't imagine how terrifying it must have been. Mm. But there are these histories, and we have to remember that, yes, there is a history of internationalism and solidarity, a working-class history of, of, of solidarity, as with more or less any posi- any social and economic position within society by the ruling class. Can, there are histories of racism wherever you look. That was the ruling class were always racist. Mm. <laughs> no, of course, of course. I guess... And look, if you follow me on Twitter, you saw me ranting about this. What you're talking about there, Sol, relates to something that I was extremely disappointed with after the general election result was how Labour were responding. And it was really, really playing into these who is allowed to be working class and who isn't. That white working class narrative, like, it's just everywhere. Like, it's so... It's the media, politicians do it all the time. But I expected better from the left and I, why I, did, I don't know why I did I think because I think because Corbyn doesn't play into that you can um, critique Corbyn on so many things I, personally I don't think you can critique him on he definitely positions the working class and it's true multi-ethnic multi-racial form in the UK but so many people around him and that are going for a Labour leader now really putting forward that exclusion of people of colour from working classness which we have to find and I, you know I'm glad that there, there are people like the Dawn Butler is there in the yeah. leadership campaign, and within that debate, if not in the leadership mm. debate, that there will be strong voices. But it's it's very disappointing. But, it is, and and you have to say that historically, the Labour Party has been racist, has mm. been an imperialist party, um, and that's not to say that. There isn't also a tradition and a history of anti-racism and, and people campaigning in the right way for, uh, on within the Labour Party, but that is where we are. That's where we're fighting. Uh, you know, we're fighting not only the right but also the left. Yeah. And 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 factions of the left who are willing, I think, to uh, respond cynically to some of these discourses around the white working class mm. and to do so in a way which actually um, splits the working class and, and reconfirms that division that yes. has been there since Brexit that was the danger that Brexit represented as the kind of both the culmination and the acceleration of uh, the way that we've had a, a right wing racist and nationalist discourse for, for, for many, many years. It, it represented a moment where, which split the left vote and which divided the working class within this country, not or bits of it. I think Corbyn's analysis is, is great. Has he, again, it's about the broader questions about the movement and the legacy. Yeah, did the movement do enough to articulate 
on a, on a personal individual level I think he does it did he do enough as a leader to embed that within the left of the Labour probably not yeah I mean I think there are things that we should be proud of to have constructed things like the world transformed which for the past three or four years has been a great kind of festival of left-wing and critical thought and we were I went to a really wonderful session which was run by Camille Barbagallo and oh legends uh, Sita big in the game oh amazing um, about how you talk to your racist uncle mm. your racist sexist uncle and it was great and you know there are, there are things like that have, that have come forward and that we need despite how hard it's going to be yeah. to keep going and to keep having those debates about how we broaden that out and we have to do that because there's not really any other choice and I guess what's becoming more difficult and I guess what was becoming really what was clear to me after the result and how people on the left within both media so Guardian all them people and also the Labour Party was how dispensable the working class people were to them that that kept them away from election annihilation like complete annihilation like the amount of people that despite not necessarily being on board with Corbyn and Labour in this form, working class people of colour who still voted, like black people who still voted, like even after the history, even after all this stuff, still voted for the Labour Party. And then you're saying Labour Party has lost its working class vote. It's so difficult because you don't want to get into... Is you're always treading this, like, this tightrope. I don't want to get into imagining or entering a discourse which talks about working-class people who happen to be white as mm. racist. Like, mm. I don't want to do that because I know it's not true. Like, I know that racism is about power. The people that have the most power, structurally, stately, are the ruling class, the middle class. Like, these are yeah. the people we've got to look at. How do they utilise racism like how, what do they do but at the same time it's getting really difficult for me to tell people have got like bear with these people like they're just being brainwashed by the sun their resources are tight like their anger's being directed at the wrong people like bear with them bear with them i promise you we're all going to get to this socialist utopia the people that voted for labor they could lose those people as in people of color in particular that are working class yeah. they could lose them i think like i don't understand why you can't why the conversation can't be about and not necessarily appreciation but a recognition of that role whilst also recognizing how in places where we are now yeah. like in the northeast things need to be done to reconfigure labor's relationship with these areas yeah. you can do both of those things yeah. but they just don't see like i don't know like where's the, the innovation first point of course is just is racism are but, you stupid I, like like i think that the lack of imagination yes. and the lack of like dynamism yeah you see within the local council that you see within amongst a lot of mps that came mm. into the party before corbyn was elected mm. they're there for themselves like they're there for themselves oh so you're so true because you know what i saw some of them when we were when we were doing when we were campaigning i met some of these people you're talking about and i was like oh wow like you're really backwards but it's like <laughs> it's so weird when you actually meet them like it yes. is bizarre, right? <laughs> Machine politics. Yes. And, and what are they doing? And, and also, do they not see Go. what they are doing? Yeah. No, in... they don't. They're so entrenched. And the kind of, I think the kind of critiques of, of sort of centrism and the, and the kind of centrist mentality, which is still there, 
within a lot of people in, in Labour councils, in, in the structures of the Labour Party amongst MPs, re-embeds and, and creates all of these all of these divisions because they don't provide any, any other alternative. We've got to try and take them on, call them out, do what we can really. And, and I think it's, it's difficult because I think we're going to need to do stuff which is, involves being outside the Labour Party and we're going to need to do stuff which is kind of strategic about when we have levers that we can use mm. to, to push people and push the Labour Party. But, but that's always what it's been, in my opinion. Like I wasn't a Labour Party member until uh, 2015. And in my opinion, it's, it's one lever amongst many that we have to build a better society mm. and radically restructure and take power. That's really interesting that you became a member in 2015. So I've been a member for... About 15 years, I think. Really? Yeah, since I was a teenager. And this is the first year that I'm thinking about leaving. After the response to the election defeat and seeing what these leadership candidates are coming out with, like, I might leave. We'll see what happens this year, but this is the first time in my life that I'm like, this isn't for me anymore. What like, made you join? So I grew up, I was born in 92, so I very much benefited um school wise not higher education school wise from new labor as in like i've spoke about this on the podcast before like mm. we literally saw like net the next day like we all got books and stuff do you know what i mean like yeah, yeah. i was part of that generation that yeah. for all of new labor's faults like materially and educationally like i wouldn't be sat here now had they not come into power but i think we did an episode actually uh, about a year ago um just talking about how that wasn't because I was, me and Tiso were trying to sort of like um, come to terms with our complicated relationship with New Labour because so many people around mm. us materially benefited from that time, even though it's a time that we very much critique um, on the left now. And actually, I think it was someone that said to us, like, that time was inevitable. So it didn't have to be Blair on the New mm. Labour politicians doing that. Like, that was an inevitable point in history where things had to change because they'd got so bad, um, like, back yeah. from Thatcher to 1997. So why did I join? I joined because I think I was always... I was into politics from a very, very young age because my dad was very much into politics and always has been. And my mum wasn't necessarily into party politics but lived in a very political, politically left way. Mm -hmm. I think that's why, really. And just wanting to just wanting to organise from a young age against institutions yeah. or like within within and against as we've been talking about. And yeah, it's only it's only recently or in this last this last month I'm like, mm, might have to leave. Which brings me to my next question. Go on. Electoral reform. So Clive Lewis came out of it last week, yeah. I think, at the nomination. I was like, I, Clive Lewis, I'm a bit up and down with him. Yeah, like, he's yeah, a bit, he's a, funny, he's a funny one. Me too. But when he came out with that, I was like, oh, okay. Like... Clive Lewis is the one, and he, I also see, feel similarly like, mm, this is a bit, he's a bit iffy on yeah, yeah, various yeah. ways. But he was the one candidate who was actually pushing some interesting ideas. Like, you can't, none of them are pushing anything new. You're not going to win. You are not going to win in this first past the post no. system. With this far right nationalist Trump Brexit era, you are not going to win yeah. in that way. So we either make coalitions or we push for electoral reform. And that's what he was saying. Like, I just, do you think that's the way that we get out of this or? I think it's one way. I mean, I'm not 
entirely convinced that mm. in the in the short term it will work anyway. Mm. Um, I do think yeah, should, not in the short term, no, of course. Yeah, I do think this is it, a long game. I do think we should have PR just because what we've got at the moment isn't democratic. Yeah, uh, first past the post system. Uh, it doesn't represent people. I mean, would we have more nationalists, more right wingers in in Parliament? Possibly, you know, you would certainly have representation for uh, the Brexit Party. Mm. Um, but at least they're where we can see them, though. In a way, yeah, I know that's a bit. You can definitely pull apart that argument, but I feel like they can hide within the. Yeah. Oh yeah, it just feels yeah. very corrupt. Yeah, I mean. It's it's a shame that Clive Lewis didn't get the nominations really because mm. he was the one person that was saying uh, you know abolish Eaton mm. <laughs> for, mm. for the personal um, point of view in terms of the campaign that I was involved in but but pushing other ideas and saying actually this and and also saying you know the electoral coalition that we've held together mm. just about doesn't work anymore. No, so this is what Dan Rennick said on our yeah. um, podcast before. He, he said, said it better than me. No, no, he didn't. He said that there's a strong possibility that Labour need to break up. Is that what you were just saying? Yeah, it, yeah. It, it, it As may... in, there needs to be a left wing part of the party and a centrist, centrist part of the party, and then we, I don't know, it's got to be separate. Yeah, I think maybe, and um, in some ways, that wouldn't be a bad thing. Um, it's not going to happen anytime soon, I don't think. No. Um, but, I mean, it's interesting. I think, I think it was just interesting thinking about what you were saying about why you joined the party and, and that, that time. Because I really remember, so I was born in 88. Mm. And I remember coming to primary school and, like, my teacher and Mrs Duncan, I remember, she was so excited. And yes. I, remember, I remember she took her turning to the, to, to the I think it was a parent, saying... I couldn't believe it. I was just, I was up all night and uh, she, you know. Just being, yeah, hope. Yeah. Uh, but but it was, they, 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 they dashed, yes, there was a lot of material improvement for a lot of people. Mm. Um, it's like Angela Reynos, who's been the shadow education minister, said, you know, she said, ideology didn't put food on my table and has talked at length about how she benefited from Sure Start. And oh, God, yes, yeah, same, my family as well, and yeah. All of that's true. Um, but it came, but but they didn't. You know, the roots for Brexit mm-hmm. were were laid under New Labour. Oh God, yeah. I mean, so this is what I'm saying. Like, yeah. what point I was trying to make is that romanticism. Yeah. Is it's first of all, it's incomplete, and it doesn't tell the whole story. And that those material conditions were at a cost, which I don't know what they were for. Yeah. Like, I, I think yeah. I was I was brought up so. My parents met and, and they were on the kind of like the sort of the middle class new left of the 70s and yeah. into, that went into the 80s um, and um, they met in a cooperative health health surgery. And, Socialist romance. Yeah, yeah, you know, <laughs> that kind of stuff, red diapers or whatever. <laughs> and, and there was a lot of cynicism around what was happening. Um, and I think I grew up in that context and, you know, on Stop the War Marches mm-hmm. and there were people within the Labour Party who were resisting those things as well, Jeremy Corbyn being the obvious example. Yeah. But um, I hated what New Labour had done in the sense that it was such a gigantic missed opportunity. Oh, God, yeah, of and, course. Yeah. Um, 
and not only was it a missed opportunity, but they continued with uh, with privatisation, with um, insecure work for, for millions yeah. of people, mm-hmm. with PFI outsourcing all these processes which have created a lot, of, created the space for all of the tensions that we're now living with. Mm-hmm. And um, it, you know, and it's infuriating watching people like Blair and others cr- criticise Corbyn and where the party is now because you just think, what right have you got? He did so much to put us in the position that we're now in. Soul's getting, he just lifted up his hand, I can see he's bubbling, he's bubbling. <laughs> No, I'm with you. I'm with you. And it's something that I feel like I have to grapple with constantly, as in, like, not. I'm not saying it's not balanced. Like, what exactly what you're saying is right. Like, I'm not disagreeing with you at all. But I just think sometimes I have to do a lot of self-criticism or self-reflection because it's so easy for me to be like, fuck, like, New Labour changed my life. And I know changed quite a lot of people's lives around me, but that... but. It was so, thinking on a global, local and national scale, like it set, it set the conditions for what we have now. Mm. It really did in terms of nationalism, racism, policies, privatisation, all those things you say, deregulation of the banks. Like it was a missed opportunity, as you say, all that power. Imagine having all that power now. Imagine having all those seats, that'd be sick. I had these images of like John McDonnell like spring, springing up with a spring in his steps sort of yeah. marching down Whitehall but whatever definitely okay so last little bit Sol yeah so particularly from this a new vision for further and higher education essay collection yeah we spoke about keeping radical ideas alive alive can we have some radical ideas that we can keep alive for 2020 some radical ideas so from here oh, okay um, what about your why reforming higher education matters for schools so this was uh me trying to say that um the way we talk about widening participation and access in particular um is always about and has become increasingly about opening up elite institutions and it's not that opening up elite institutions doesn't need to happen but the reality of that from a school's perspective is that what you're talking about in the, for most schools is a minority of students who are basically being pre-selected onto widening participation programmes. And people like uh, John Rainford and Vicky Bolivar have done lots of work around the, the problems to do with access. And, and why don't we, you know, if we have a broader idea around access, which is about saying, let's move towards open access to higher education, let's transition to towards a a system where the division between universities and other educational institutions is much mm. less, where there's mm. no hierarchy between different universities, mm. uh, and and where elitism isn't isn't and, and and power isn't embedded in the educational structures, the curricula, the institutions that we go to. Mm. If 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 education isn't about that, then it becomes about the many, it becomes about all of us, um, rather than it being about fair equality of opportunity and meritocracy so yeah that was my my piece in there and for you like as an academic as a sociologist where what are your boundaries with that like how are there things that you won't do in terms of your academic practice or things that you won't engage in or 
like do you know what I mean you know how we were talking earlier like how you work with and outside of the university like because you your research area is education yeah are there things that you're like I won't do that like or I won't speak there or I won't do this or yeah so I actually just turned down co-authoring a report yeah um and that report, which is on a great topic, mm. um, is being um, funded by an organisation called University Partnerships Programme Foundation, or UPP Foundation. Um, UPP are a private student accommodation housing firm. For God's sake. So they now have a foundation. So UPP have a separate foundation which funds policy research, and it's funding... Are you joking? Uh, yeah, it's funding... This is where all that fucking accommodation money's going. All the private student accommodation fees. Uh-huh. UPP has a foundation, and the, the other really big, actually, I think possibly the biggest private student accommodation provider, Unite, also have a, a policy foundation that gives out bursaries. And, and I, I said, I, I, you know, this report is, is, is great. It's about the problems with emphasising social mobility in relation to regional development and inequality. Mm. If your all of your policy is based on the idea that people should leave where they're from, mm. what, what does that what does that do? That's everything. That is our, yeah. that that's our structure, which, isn't it? Which is a key, you know, which is really important. But I'm not going to do that. A, I'm in a like privileged position where I don't, you know, I don't need to show that I'm, I'm doing extra stuff. Mm. Mm. But like that, like I draw the line at working at doing research which is funded by student rent from basically my own students exorbitant student rents and those buildings UPP has buildings that were clad in the same material that Grenfell was clad in and just to be clear, just can you just repeat that so, so just for the paper UPP. Nottingham Trent University had student accommodation which with flammable cladding and that building was owned by UPP, and UPP have this foundation that funds policy research on higher education. And that's the environment that we're now working in with education policy, where there is a lot of corporate-funded education policy and education research, and um, it's that they're being funded by really dubious sources. So is this, like... What as an expert in this soul, what is the future like? We've got a far right government now. I feel like the I feel like the university is about to be like even more under attack than it already was before. What is the future of higher education in particular in this country? Do you see it as? And when I say future, I mean the next ten years. What are we going to see? I mean my in in my my worst fears. Um, and we've already seen it, so uh, Bolsonaro in, in Brazil, and again, I don't know loads about this, but they have deliberately and explicitly attacked sociology. Yeah. In, no more sociology departments. Yeah. yeah. In uh, Hungary, Budapest, ge- yeah. yeah, in Hungary, yeah. the Central Uni- European University um, has moved to Vienna, and there are no gender studies courses yeah. anymore um, in Hungary. And we're talking about keeping radical ideas alive and as sociologists you know this we are a discipline that could potentially come under attack uh, because we pres- we keep critical ideas and critical thinking alive that said um higher education has a number of kind of 
contradictory discourses, which uh, we, we, which in, in, in normal times we'd probably be opposed to. So the idea, for example, of institutional autonomy and universities being autonomous, which in actual fact is really problematic mm. because it just means senior university managers can do what they want, the academy by and large recreates itself, mm. and we end up with a whole host of problems. Mm -hmm. But the flip side of that is that for the Conservative Party, that, you know, that kind of discourse around institutional autonomy is something which uh, can potentially be used to our advantage. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. Um, and uh, the, other, the other thing which plays into universities' hand is that they're a massive earner for UK PLC and the kind of league tables which have often been, you know, come from the UK in, in, in many senses, like the Times Higher, for example, they skew towards the UK, which is obviously, and the US, and other English-speaking um, countries, which is obviously problematic, but the, within the kind of real politic of, mm. of, of higher education, it may offer some slim protection. But yeah, you know, higher education is going to come under attack in some ways and we'll see what happens. And it may be from your colleagues as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sorry, that's so depressing. I'm just thinking of like the free speech brigade. Yeah, yeah the idea that there's some crisis of no platforming. Yeah, and, like, oh, you're all too woke. Like, oh, we're not allowed to say how we feel anymore. All of that BS. Yeah, and I think Evan Smith has written about... Um, has written about Spiked, for example, oh, and that whole... I didn't know they had a podcast. Oh, that Ariel dick. London and uh, Aaron Winter, they were talking about it today. Yeah, 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 yeah. Legends. Twitter. Yeah. Big up, Aaron, Aurelian. Oh, well, Sol, that was a slightly depressing, but I feel like we... I feel like... I don't, I don't think it should be. I mean, the, the, the best thing that I read the last two... since the election was Gary Young's piece. Oh, brilliant, wasn't right? it? Sing yourself so, up, imagine a world in which you might thrive. Oh, right, which so I mean, there so, is no evidence and then fight for it. Can you say that again? Sing yourself up, imagine a world in which you might thrive, for which there is no evidence and then fight for it. And that was the quote from the end of Gary Young's piece. Big up Gary Young. Yeah. You should New get him on. Have you had him on? No, I really want to get him on. Gary, come on. Professor of sociology now at Manchester. Come on, Gary. You're a sociologist now. Yes. Um, I love this. So I'm in Sol's office, right, in Durham. By the way, Durham is so beautiful up here. Um, very peaceful and the air is very clean. I'm in Sol's office and you've got, is this some, is this like an inspiration blackboards? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's different quotes from various people. Thank you so much for joining us, Sol. Um, no, thank you and thanks for coming up. Oh, of course. It's been a great paper. Oh, yeah. thank you. We will be back with our Spotlight series. See you soon. You've been listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. Please like, rate and subscribe. You can also find more of us on Twitter and Instagram.